So we're in our fourth week of our Advent series, The Radical Gift of the Messiah. So, just a quick recap. And by the way, if you haven't seen the other messages, if you'd like to see them, hammockstreetchurch.com or YouTube channel. I think that's uh, hammock.street.church. Is that right? No, just YouTube slash hammockstreetchurch. Go ahead and look at that. You could catch any old messages that you'd like to see. But remember, we've talked about the radical rescue and the radical promise. And then last week we talked about the radical plan. And we're going to finish up the series on Christmas Eve. That's Friday night. What time are our services Friday night? Four and six. Excellent. Thank you. Very enthusiastic response. I appreciate that. We're going to celebrate the radical arrival. Remember after that, I'm going to say it one more time, we're not going to meet on the 26th. We're not going to meet on Sunday, Boxing Day. If you're from the UK or Canada or the Bahamas or Jamaica or any of those places, that's where they celebrate those things. We'll meet again on January 2nd in 2022. It's going to be 2022. Wasn't it just 2020? Did 2021 go real fast for everybody? It has been the crazy. It's the craziest thing. Anyway, as believers, by this point in time, we should realize that Christmas, the day that God's people all over the world celebrate the birth of the Messiah, Christmas is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. For the believer, the celebration of the Messiah's birth should be the central part of our lives. All year long, it should be the central part of our lives. Now, by the way, I don't mean that as a Christian, you should go to church every single Sunday all year long. I want you to, but that's not what we're talking about. But I mean that the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Messiah, Jesus, should be central to our lives on Sunday in our worship, in our daily times of prayer when we pray in the morning or the evening or throughout the day, in our day-to-day lives as we interact with people, as we make decisions in business or through our families when we're working, when, when we're interacting with our friends, we're interacting with our communities. Everything we do should be lensed through the thing that we're celebrating on Christmas. The Apostle Paul put it this way when he was writing to the church in Corinth, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Okay, so in other words, everything. Okay, do it all for the glory of God. So when you're sitting there and you're watching television, your hands in the bag of the Cool Ranch Doritos, do it for the glory of God. Okay, just remember that. In other words, our understanding of the meaning of Christmas, by the way, also Easter, that forms the foundation upon which Every other facet of our lives rests. That's where we start. Because when the work of Jesus is central to our lives, we'll not only be able to rightly celebrate the true meaning of Christmas, but we'll also be able to look past all the sparkly lights and the decorated palm trees here in Florida and all the presents. And then we can have the confidence that we need in God's promises and power in every situation. All right, got that? Now, the next step in our understanding of the true meaning of Christmas will be to examine the way in which God told his people that the arrival of the Messiah was imminent. It's about to happen. And we're calling this message the radical announcement. Now, as we've been talking about for the last few weeks, God's provision of a Messiah to his creation wasn't sort of something he thought of at the last minute. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment act on God's part. It was actually part of God's entire plan that 
we saw, was disclosed in Genesis chapter 3. And it was fleshed out throughout thousands of years of Jewish history. And it was clarified by the prophets Isaiah and Micah, as well as others. Now, at the end of the Old Testament, the close of the Old Testament, so that closes with the book of Malachi, God gave his ancient people their final clue. So in the 500s BC, so here's a little history for you, God's people returned from exile after this Persian king, King Cyrus, allowed them to go back and rebuild the walls in the Holy Land, to rebuild the walls in Israel. Now, they went back and they rebuilt the temple. So if you've been in church a little bit, you've heard some of the stories of the rebuilding. We've heard stories about Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, which is always a great name. I always think that's a Flintstones name, isn't it? You know, Barney Zerubbabel or something like that. So they're getting back into the swing of their religious life. But As is often the case with religious life, the practice of religion can overshadow the worship of God. That's one thing that as Christians we always need to be mindful of, is to not let our practice of religion overshadow our worshiping of our God. And when we do that, God's people can draw even farther away from God. So that's where Malachi comes in. Now, most people believe that the book of Malachi was written somewhere around the mid-400s B.C. And it was written for a purpose. It was written to correct the lax religious and social behavior of the Israelites, particularly the priests. So the priests, who are the ones who are in charge of the temple worship, they were kind of getting lax. They were kind of slipping in their enthusiasm. They are getting a little too churchy, a little too religious. So we were worried about that. They were worried about that in post-exilic Jerusalem, which means they came back after the exile. And so Malachi announces to the people the way in which God would herald, would let them know about the coming of the Messiah. Now, the Old Testament canon, not C-A-N-N-O-N, but C-A-N-O-N. So in other words, the Old Testament book as it was set up, as we know it, it closed. In other words, no other books would be added with Malachi's promise that before the Messiah shows up, God's going to send a prophet to announce his arrival. So this is in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. All right, so that's the heralding of the arrival of the Messiah. So this this prophet Elijah is going to say, guess what? The Messiah is about to show up. Now, you might remember the prophet Elijah. We read about him in the book of 2 Kings. That's in the Old Testament. Remember, after Elijah crossed the Jordan, a chariot of fire, not the movie, but that's where the movie got its name, a chariot of fire appeared to take him up to heaven in a whirlwind. Well, the people of God knew their Bible. The people of God remembered 2 Kings, and they were on the lookout for the return of Elijah to announce the Messiah's arrival, but they waited a long time. They waited 400 years. You know, when you're standing on the line at Starbucks and you've ordered your double-calf mochaccino frap and there's six or seven people in front of you and they're really slow and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're looking at your watch and you're tapping your feet. Yeah, that's four minutes. This is 400 years. So they waited 400 years. And in the interim, in the meantime, Jerusalem would experience this great change and this great turmoil. And during that time, Israel would be occupied by two powerful invaders and would also have kind of a weird transitionary 
government. So the invaders, the Greeks in the early 300s BC, led by Alexander the Great, although I don't think he was all that good, but anyway, Alexander the Great, that actually led to problems with the Seleucids and the Ptolemites, which were tribes that came from Alexander's children. And then there was a short-lived Israeli, Hebrew-led dynasty called the Hasmonean dynasty that began in the mid-100s BC. That's actually where the uh, holiday of Hanukkah came from during that dynasty. And then the Romans show up roughly in, you know, early or right before the the new A.D. started. So the Romans sort of began their thing in like 64 BC. Once again, their attention began to drift from God to the day-to-day issues of their world, which makes perfect sense. You're waiting for God to do something. He took 400 years. You're kind of beginning to lose confidence, right? So this brings us to the book of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, so the third book in the New Testament, and the announcement of the birth of the Messiah. Now, when I read through our passages that we're going to go over today, it kind of occurred to me that both the story in Luke 1 and the story in our world today basically leave us with two types of responses that everybody hearing the announcement of the Messiah would have. So here are the two responses when you hear the Messiah's coming. Number one, which is, by the way, the wrong response. Number one, it's doubt. I don't believe you. Prove it. Okay, Messiah's coming. I don't believe you. Prove it to me. That's response number one. Well, then, of course, there's the second response, which we'll call the proper response. It's faith or thank you, God. You're awesome. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know exactly what you're going to do, but I have faith you're going to, and I know I'm going to praise you for it. Now, by the time we're done today, it's my hope that we'll all realize that the preferred response is indeed faith and not doubt. And hopefully we can find ourselves among the faithful as well. Now, in comparing these two announcements, we're going to see a contrast between questioning God's promises and understanding God's promises. And we're going to see a model of how God desires for us to faithfully follow and worship him in spite of our questions. Okay, so you got that? Not doubt, but faith. How we respond, how we follow faithfully. Okay, so let's pray one more time, and then we'll dig in. Father God, thank you for gathering us here today. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. As we, as we study your word, as we read the Bible, as we try to understand how you would have us live this life, we would ask that you would keep our hearts and minds open so that we can take in your word and apply it to our day-to-day existence. God, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll start off by looking at the improper response to God's promises, that response of doubt, and our text will be Luke chapter 1. Now, in Luke 1, we're introduced to a guy by the name of Zechariah. Okay, Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest, a Jewish priest, Hebrew priest. He lived in a little hillside town in Judea. Well, here's what happened with the priests. Two weeks out of the year, Zechariah served at the temple in Jerusalem. So he didn't live in Jerusalem, but two weeks out of the year, he went to Jerusalem to serve as a priest and do priestly work, priestly duties. And it was during one of these weeks of duty that he was chosen by lot, by the way, by by lottery. That's where that comes from. He was chosen by by choice, by, by lot, to enter the temple to burn the evening incense. So here's our scripture. It comes from Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. 
His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. Now, by the way, when we read the word righteous here, it doesn't mean righteous like Jesus is righteous or like his righteousness is imputed to us. It merely means that they were devout followers of God. You got that? So saying they were righteous doesn't mean they were without sin. It just means they were devout followers of God. So that's Zechariah and Elizabeth. But verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. And by the way, I don't know how old they were. But in the Bible, people tended to be old when they said they were old. So who knows, right? Okay, so here we are. Zechariah was a priest, which means that he was from the tribe of Levi. And even though it was a special distinction that his wife also was from the tribe of Levi, how do we know that? Because she came from Aaron's family, and Aaron sort of sat at the top of that pyramid of, of priestly family. So Elizabeth came from Aaron's family. Zechariah was a priest. He had the double priestly blessing in the family, but it was considered disgraceful in Jewish life that the wife was childless. So you had kind of this conflict of their priestly family, so they're to be venerated, but also they didn't have children, so they were looked at a bit askance. So we go on to verse 8. When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as the priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So, the tribe of Levi supplied the priests who served in the temple. Now, because there were so many priests available, you got to imagine that, you know, over time, this tribe of Levi just kept growing and growing and growing. Because there were so many priests, so many descendants of Levi, the tribe of Levi was divided into 24 divisions. And each division was able to do temple duty for two weeks in the year. Now, most of the priests spent most of their time away from Jerusalem, and they were serving in secular occupations. So they were priests, but they weren't priests full-time. It wasn't a full-time job. So the incense offering is made twice daily, and the choice of the individual to make that incense offering in the holy place was fixed by the casting of lots so that they didn't play favorites. But it was a high honor. And it was a high honor that was given to a priest only once in their lifetime if they got it at all. So the incense was offered two times during the day, in the morning, before the morning sacrifice, and after the evening sacrifice, which put it in the late afternoon. So it was probably the evening offering that was assigned to Zechariah. Now, the practice was that the priest himself goes in to make the offering while the people wait outside in an attitude of prayer. So while he's in, they're outside praying until he reappears and prays a benediction over them and then dismisses them. So here's the scene. We have Zechariah, one of the religious elite of his day. And he was a man who not only nominally knew God, because we always say that the Israelites knew God, he, he didn't just know God. He had devoted his life to God's service because he was a priest. He's about to go into God's house, into the temple, and he's about to serve God by offering incense. And so when he enters the temple, we go to Luke chapter 1, verse 11. Here's what happens. An angel of the Lord appears to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. By the way, isn't this interesting? If this is just a metaphor, why do you bother saying he's standing on the right side? Right? You could just say, an angel appeared to him. And we go, okay, on the right side. We're describing something that actually happened. The angel appeared standing on the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled. 
and was gripped with fear. Now, by the way, I always like to point this out. You know, when we go to the mall and we see these little angels, particularly around Valentine's Day, and they're all cute, and they're wearing a little diaper that doesn't fit very well, and they have a little bow and arrow, and they're chubby cheeks, and they're adorable, right? That's not what angels look like in the Bible. Whenever there's an angel in the Bible, somebody's terrified. Okay, they were terrifying. All right, that's verse 12. We go on to verse 13. But the angel said to him, which you'll hear angels say a lot, don't be afraid, Zechariah. You always have to talk him off the ledge there. Don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God, verse 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts and parents to their ch- hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So this is, that, this is that prophet that they were waiting for, and Zechariah is told that his son John is going to serve that function. That's what we just saw. Zechariah, a priest of Israel, enters the temple, sees an angel of the Lord standing beside the incense altar, and Zechariah was scared to death. He was troubled. He was frightened. But the angel, who was the angel Gabriel, told him, don't be afraid. He told him, Zechariah, God has heard your prayers. At long last, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And Zechariah, I'm going to tell you what you're going to name that son. You're going to name him John, Yohanan in the Hebrew. You're going to name him John. And then here's even bigger news. Your son is going to be the one that Micah promised 400 years ago. Your son's going to be the one that Micah promised is going to herald the coming of the Messiah. Okay, you got that? Not only are you going to have a son, Zechariah, your son's going to fulfill the prophecy that our people have been waiting for for 400 years. He's going to announce the coming of the Messiah. Now, if you had heard that and you were among a people who were waiting for 400 years, you'd think, that's some pretty good news, isn't it? You'd think, that's all I ever needed to hear. I mean, Zechariah had gone to the temple on behalf of the people for the purpose of representing them and for the purpose of serving God. And as a priest, his whole life was dedicated to the service of God. And even though the angel's presence scared him a bit, surely he believed in God. Surely he knew of the angels. And you would think the presence of an angel announcing this awesome announcement from God would encourage Zechariah's faith. But if you assume that, you'd be wrong. Verse 18 Zechariah asked the angel, hey, I added that inflection, but I'm going to guess it's probably not too bad. How can I, how can I be sure of this? I, I'm, I'm an old man. And my wife, notice he doesn't call her old. He says she's well along in years. Even then he knew, ain't mama happy, ain't nobody happy. So right, I'm an old man. And my wife, well, you know, she's been around a little while, you know. And you go, huh? Like, wait, what? Zechariah, you've been waiting for this news your whole life. That's your answer? Didn't you hear the news? Didn't you, didn't you just encounter God's messenger face to face in the temple? What do you think was going to happen in the temple? You're, you're surprised by a spiritual encounter in the temple? See, instead of giving thanks, Zechariah doubted. He demanded more proof. 
He demanded more proof than just the plain word of God's messenger, Gabriel. His response to this announcement was not one of faith and thanksgiving. His response was one of hesitation and doubt. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. So Gabriel says to Zechariah, listen, I'm Gabriel. I have credibility because I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and this is why I am here. I came here to bring you this good news that you're now questioning. And so Gabriel says, you know something, Zechariah? I didn't appreciate the lack of faith. So, verse 20, you will be silent and not be able to speak until this happens because you didn't believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. So for your lack of faith, Zechariah, because you didn't believe my words, I'm going to render you mute. You're not going to be able to speak until you see the promise fulfilled. Zechariah came out of the temple to bless the people, and he couldn't because he couldn't speak. Now watch what happens. By all appearances, and even by his profession that he was a follower of God, when he got to the temple of all places, when he was face-to-face with God's messenger of all situations, Zechariah did not believe. Zechariah reacted with skepticism and doubt, and he based his skepticism and doubt on his own limited understanding. We can't have a child. I'm too old. My wife has got some mileage on her too. That's not possible. Zechariah, the temple priest, forgot to factor God into the equation. We often forget that when we're reading the scripture and we talk about all these people all the time, we're not talking, it's not their story. It's God's story written through them. God was not honored and things didn't go well for Zechariah as a result. Faith is rewarded, but unbelief, unbelief is not. And God made Zechariah unable to speak until the word was fulfilled. God had given Zechariah a very personal sign that he would have to live with for the next nine months or so. But God kept his promise. And Elizabeth conceived a son in her old age. And her son would one day herald, announce the coming of the Messiah. And I read this story and I can't help but think, Zechariah, man, how could you miss it? You know your Bible. You always go to church. You didn't go to church. But you're a religious professional. When, when Gabriel referenced the spirit of Elijah, you, you knew what God was talking about. You knew what Gabriel was talking about. You understood what God was going to do. You understood that God was going to work through your family, through your son. You prayed for this your whole life. For years, you asked God. You and all the Israelites asked God to answer this prayer. Didn't you believe in what you were praying? I thought, man, I'd have done so much better. But then I thought, well, before I throw rocks, don't I do the same thing? Do you? I thought, how often do I doubt God? How often do I doubt that he'll answer my prayers? How often do I doubt that he cares enough for me to listen? I do doubt. But our celebration of Christmas reminds us that we don't serve a God 
who's limited in the ways that we're limited. We don't serve a God who is bound by time and space. We serve a God who is supernatural. It means he lives above the natural order. We serve a God who loves us and a God who wants a relationship with us. See, our God knew us before the beginning of time. Our God knows the number of hairs on our head. And with the exception of you guys who shave your heads, does anyone else know the number of hairs on your head? And even you guys who shave your heads, you don't know your follicles. Our God entered time and space so that we could live forever with him. We serve a God that behaves in ways and does things that the world sees as impossible, that the world sees as radical. Isn't it wonderful that our God is not restricted to the usual or bound by the merely natural? Our God is the God of the unusual. And the sooner we see God as he is, the more quickly our lives will be transformed. So that's Zechariah's story. And now I want to compare Zechariah's response to another response to the radical announcement. This is the proper response to God's promises, faith. All right, so Gabriel wasn't done working. He had another announcement to make. So a few months after he spoke with Zechariah, Gabriel was sent to Nazareth, where he appeared to a young, engaged woman whose name was Miriam. Miriam. Mary. Okay? Luke 1.26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, see, Elizabeth was Zechariah's wife, John's mother. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. All right, what did the virgin say to Mary? Well, you know this one if you've come to church at Christmas time before. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Like, who talks like this? The announcement of the birth of Jesus was told in a way that's very similar to the preceding story so that when we read it, we can see the parallel. That's why it's written that way. So what do we know about Mary? Well, we know that she's Jewish. We know that she's from the tribe of Judah, which means she's a descendant of David. And we know that she is a virgin. We know that she was engaged to a builder in Nazareth whose name was Joseph. And apparently both of them were very poor. This is kind of cool. How do you know they're poor? Because when you read about the sacrifices that they made in Jerusalem, when you see what they sacrificed, those are the things that poor people sacrificed. You could read that in Leviticus 12.8 and then compare it to Luke 2.24 if you care to do that. It's kind of fun. But So they brought small doves. They didn't bring goats. They didn't bring sheep. Okay? Now, among the Jews at that time, this is interesting, engagement was almost as binding as marriage. You could only break an engagement by going through a divorce. In fact, the man and the woman were called husband and wife even before the marriage ceremony took place. That's pretty interesting. So since Jewish girls were married young, it's likely that Mary was a very young teenager when the angel appeared to her. She was also somewhat of a social undesirable among the Jewish people. Why? Because people in Judah disdained the Jews in Galilee and claimed they weren't kosher. You see, there were a lot of Gentiles in Galilee, and they basically said, there are too many Gentiles for you to remain kosher. You're interacting too much with Gentiles. It makes you unclean. We don't even like to talk about Galilee. Now, they especially despised the people from Nazareth, in Galilee. Remember, we heard a couple weeks ago, what good could come out of Nazareth, right? We heard that. 
Like Zechariah, Mary was startled and upset by the appearance of the angel, as everyone is in the scripture. But his greeting said that she was favored. All right, so we move on. Luke 1.30. But the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. Watch every time you see an angel in scripture. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're going to call him Jesus. By the way, for anyone who's had a kid, wouldn't it be nice if just God came along and told you what you're going to name your kid? Just make things so much easier. You wouldn't have to get that book and, you know. What do you think of the name Holden? You know, I don't know. It's just right there, right? Okay. You have found faith. You will call him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So here's what's going on. This time, God didn't send his angel to a religious professional like Zechariah. He sent his angel to an undesirable teenage girl named Mary who happened to live in an undesirable place, Nazareth in Galilee. So God, in his grace, chose a girl from Nazareth in Galilee to be the mother of the promised Messiah. What an honor. Mary was to call her son by the name Jesus. Actually, in Hebrew, the name is Yeshua or Yeshua, which translates actually to Joshua. So if we're translating Yeshua directly into English and it didn't go through the Latin, we'd probably call him Joshua Christ which is really weird. But that's what we've read. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, it all means Savior. This baby would be a king in the line of David. He would be called the Son of the Most High, and he would rule over David's realm forever, fulfilling the Old Testament and the Old Covenant promises. So like Zechariah, Mary blurts out a question, but her question is of a different kind than Zechariah's. Watch this. How? How? How are you going to do How will this be? How will this be since I am a virgin? Now, see, Mary didn't seem surprised that the Messiah was going to come. She was just surprised that she would be the mother since she was a virgin. By the way, literally in the Greek, that term virgin means I didn't know a man. doesn't mean I'm not acquainted with. You grown-ups get that. You kids ask your parents. Okay. But the angel doesn't rebuke Mary here the same way he rebukes Zechariah. This indicates that Mary didn't doubt the angel's words. She just wanted to know how you're going to do it. How are you going to accomplish this? This is crazy. I've never heard such a thing. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So the answer was, the Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally bring about a physical conception, the physical conception of Jesus. Now that angel's response echoed another Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Another one we see at Christmas all the time. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now if you've ever had this discussion with somebody and they tell you the Hebrew word there isn't virgin. It actually means young woman. It's the difference between the word uh, betula and the word alma. Don't worry about the distinction. It's a distinction without a difference. If you are a young woman in that culture and you have conceived, hmm, You're not a virgin anymore, okay? So she's a young woman. It means she's a virgin. The story, though, emphasizes not the virginity of Mary. It's very interesting. Certain movements, Christian movements, have focused on the virginity of Mary. That's not the focus. The focus is on the positive fact that the child will be conceived by God. 
by God's power and not by human means. Now, this person would be a descendant of David because he was accepted as the legal son of Mary's husband. All right, so here we go. Luke 1, 36. Even Elizabeth, your relative. Now, Elizabeth, okay, so remember Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother. So Elizabeth was actually Mary's cousin. So your relative is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her six months, for no word from God will ever fail. So the angel ends his message by giving Mary a word of encouragement. Elizabeth is, is pregnant because nothing's impossible with God. What I did with your cousin, watch what I do with you. To this explanation, Mary had only one response. And unlike Zechariah, her, her response wasn't, oh yeah, prove it. Her response was a response of faith. Verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. That's it. Whatever you say, God, I'm I'm in. I'm here to do whatever you say. That's the right answer. Because of her faith, Mary knew what would happen. She just didn't know how it would happen. Her question in that verse 34 that we just looked at was not evidence of her unbelief, but it was an expression of her faith. She believed the promise. She just didn't understand the performance. After Mary's believing response was to surrender herself to God as his willing servant, Mary experienced the grace of God, not judgment, not muteness, the grace of God, and believed the word of God, and therefore she could be used by God's Holy Spirit to accomplish the will of God. She belonged to the Lord, body, soul, and spirit. What an example that is for us to follow. Mary's faith response was even more striking when we realized that this is interesting. According to Old Testament law, to be pregnant while you're still single may have been dealt with by being stoned to death. Also, her fiancé, Joseph, he knew the child wasn't his. He could have not gone through with the marriage. Like, he could have backed out and she could have been killed. She knew what was at stake, and yet she still had faith. She was still willing to trust that God would work everything out. Now, from there, Mary responds to Gabriel's message by going to stay with Elizabeth until just before the birth of her child. And Mary's visit provided further confirmation of the message. When she got there, if you remember the story, Mary greets Elizabeth with a blessing. Elizabeth blesses her. Elizabeth realized that Mary was to be the mother of the Messiah. Elizabeth, cousin Elizabeth, was overjoyed that Mary would visit her. And she praised Mary for accepting the angel's word. And it's interesting because if you remember, even John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb jumped, jumped for joy when he realized that Mary was pregnant with the Messiah. And Mary didn't just believe. Mary sang a song about her belief which is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55. We're not going to go through it today. It's called the Magnificat, which is Latin for glorifies. You may be familiar with the Magnificat this time of year. If you grew up in a Catholic or a Lutheran or a high Episcopal background, that's, you'll sing the Magnificat. It's there in the services. The Magnificat is, a, is, is filled with praise for God and displays a vivid awareness of God's greatness and his love. Incidentally, the words for the Magnificat were inspired by the writings in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in something that's called the Song of Hannah, after God gave Hannah a child. 
So the Magnificat is a shout of exultation to God, followed by a series of statements indicating why God is to be praised. So Mary knew him as God, who cares enough to do exactly what he promised. And I say to you, wouldn't it be nice if we knew God like that? Mary's response to God's announcement is the response that God wants from each of us. That response was faith. Even when we don't understand how God is going to provide, he wants us to be faithful in the fact that he will respond and provide what we need. God promised to never leave us or forsake us. God promised that he has a plan to give us a hope and a future. God promised that he works all things out for good. And God told us that he loves us. And through faith in him, our glorious eternity is guaranteed. Mary's faith was rewarded and our faith will be rewarded as well. So let's sum up. Zechariah doubted God's promises. Mary had faith. At Christmas, we're reminded about the reality of our faith, the reality of our God, reality of a God who loves us so much that he made a way for us to have a relationship with him in spite of our sins, in spite of our unworthiness. Once we've admitted that we're all sinners and we're totally incapable of living the perfect life that would be necessary to make ourselves acceptable to God, but we then believed that Jesus, the Messiah, lived that perfect life for us and he died on a cross. And he paid the penalty that we as sinners deserve. And he was buried and he rose from the dead. But he came back. He ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand. And knowing that, if we've committed our lives to God through Jesus, we can enjoy God's gift of eternal life, then we know. And then we can see that God has been truthful from the beginning of time. And we can be faithful because of that. God has fulfilled all of his promises to his chosen people, and he has delivered his Redeemer to set us free. Just months after he announced it would happen, the Messiah was born. And the world has never been the same since. Amen? On Friday night, we're going to gather here. What time? Four and six. For Christmas Eve, candlelight services. We'll talk about the conclusion of the story then as we celebrate God's radical arrival. I hope you all can make it. I look forward to seeing everybody on Friday. Take some invitations, please. Bring them. Invite everyone you can. We're going to have a great night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this story. Thank you for this history. Thank you for this understanding that we have, that we serve a God who is real and living and active and a God who loves us dearly. So God, let us never forget that. Let us keep that on our minds at all times as we do the assignment that you've given us to lead a people to you. God, we love you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.